Welcome to Ferment Radio, a podcast series on bacterial and social fermentation. Fermentation can incite social action, spark creativity and bring surprising new tastes to our lives. My name is Aga Pokrywka and I invite you to join us in a conversation on living interconnectivities, from macro to micro, from societal to cellular and from global to personal. The notion of animal rights, meaning that we recognize their universal, intrinsic rights, regardless if some animals are more useful for humans or not, is being talked about more and more these days. However, we can't fully understand the lives of animals and in result we can't understand our own lives without microbes and our relationship with them. Our lives depend on them. In other words, we belong to them. This episode revolves around speculative microbial perspective in the work of Terike Hapoya. Terike is a visual artist based in New York whose work investigates animality, multi-species politics, cohabitation, repairing connections and the existential and political boundaries of our world. Her research and work put special focus on issues that emerge from anthropocenic worldview of Western traditions. Are you ready to take a deep dive in those topics? Let's begin with Terike's gripping text on belonging. That text came out of, I mean, it's a COVID text uh, and and it came out of like intense um, isolation and uh, loneliness. Uh, and I think that's actually something that is not always true, but I think is true often is that art or creative creative effort comes, grows out of a, a lack or absence or trauma or, or some disconnect or friction or something that kind of troubles you enough to, to make the effort of actually working on something, you know? So instead of like intellectual curiosity, like the, the source of creativity is like, there's something that really, that needs attending, you know, that you like, mentally emotionally need to attend to an issue because it's it's somehow burdening or troubling or hurting you in some way um and so ab- absolutely that text came out of being a uh, very feeling like crushingly isolated during that time and and then thinking of like what you know what 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 is the need like what kind of connection do i need what kind kinds of connections are are nourishing um, and so the text, um, just briefly, like the text goes through kind of first introduces different ways of, um, different ways of, uh, connecting to each other that are aiming to be like nonviolent or consensual and kind of like weaves around this idea that a sense of feeling of belonging is when you, you have a consensual, um, relationship where you can be yourself and you can, you're accepted and that there's no, the, the things like punishment or demands or yeah kind of conditions for for belonging don't really like create this emotional sense of like wanting or feeling feeling seen feeling feeling being present and that you know one of the thoughts that had 
revealed them itself to me like before we I started writing was that you know we have all these art projects about and and intellectual exercises on kind of more than human interactions that would be consensual with thinking of like ecosexuality or some kind of like kinship um, with a more than human world while at the same time we have very little tools to be in consensual relations with each other as humans you know our, our societies are incredibly punitive and based on punishment and exclusion and demands and you know and and these are the models that we we learn and so how could we build consensual relations with other species if we don't even know how to do that with our closed you know like family or or loved ones you know the human beings that that are right there so i was looking through different modes of how people have thought of transformative justice or restorative justice or nonviolent communication or different ways of thinking of consent in um indigenous um, you know scientific practices or or Sami um, cultural practices. And then, you know, then going from there to think of like, what what would that mean in relationship to the more than human world? What kind of shift in our overall like relations with each other would that require? Um, so it's kind of like paradoxical text in the sense that it, it's, it's not based on, <laughs> you know, to some degree, of course, I'm sure it's based to some some level of practice, like lifetime practice of trying to figure things out. But also it's written while I'm in the room alone, <laughs> you know, not in relations with anyone. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so that's, and, you know, the question of kind of national belonging. And I think that's something that I've, I've thought of um, like more recently is that I, I should maybe write a uh, a sequel like on belonging to, to 2.0 to think about this question of patriotism and nationalism um that is very very like problematic at the time and how there is this sense of non-belonging that's created by all kinds of forces capitalist capitalism is like probably the driving force i i think white supremacy uh, patriarchy um this like individualism are part of the force of capitalism, so it's not external to those. Colonialism um, is like the the force that is separating us from each other. And then the rise of national white nationalism, for example, is like one manifestation of this need to find a, a way of belonging. But it's kind of perverted. Maybe, I don't know, like who am I to say it's perverted, <laughs> you know, but that there is something that's, you know, it's not so simple that we, maybe we on the, and I say we on the progressive left or in the post-humanities, we sometimes tend to romanticize, I, maybe I shouldn't say we, like I romanticized <laughs> this idea of belonging without thinking in that moment when I was writing the text, without thinking necessarily of the, of the implications on the other side, which is like, this need for belonging to a tribe, to a group, to, you know, that, that also generate like exclusion and violence. Um, and that we see like, that's a huge problem at the moment. So like to think of like, what are those political manifestations of this, this lack of belonging that people have and the need to belong and whether, whether like how, how can we use this word belonging in a way that makes these important distinctions, you know, of, of, of what do we mean in in which context uh, with that word so that's kind of something especially now with the question of ukraine and 
um, and everything that's happening in the Eastern Europe uh, and maybe in relationship to how maybe American left is viewing and has this different like and maybe like a problem with with um, with nationalism as it sees as it's like appearing now in in the in the Eastern Europe um, is something that I think would be important to try to try to think um, and I, I don't know how how these two modes of belonging kind of you know like how can you put them together in a um, in a meaningful way um, but yeah maybe just to 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 conclude um, yeah I, I think like one reason for that text also is that of, of course I felt a intense feeling of not belonging being a like an expat um, which I guess it's this kind of privileged non-belonging of still having everything, be, being belonging in whiteness, belonging in certain class position, belonging in in many many ways in in the world. But then on on some levels, some levels of you know, emotional register or something like that, you don't. I I don't feel that I belong to the U.S. in, in that way, and um, and that is also something I've thought of a lot. Um, which is like, what does being a Finnish person, what what does it mean to me? Because there is a sense of feeling of belonging, even belonging with the right-wing Finnish person, you know, that there's something that we both belong into. And that's maybe a sense of language or a relationship to landscape or some kind of intergenerational way of being, cultural way of being that transcends political divisions. Um, so like, what, what is that? I don't really even know what, what, what is it? Um, but I wanted to continue on what you were saying before about, um, mm, uh, nonviolent communication as a tool to, or as a method to like a consensual copying. Uh, I was thinking that this tool totally makes sense, but if we are going to communicate our boundaries and our needs, first we need to have access to what actually our needs are and what our boundaries are. And I think if we talk about like a traumatized people who are, you know, like a, after difficult experiences, and I think that I don't want to diagnose now everybody, but I think everybody has some smaller or bigger trauma, like, a, and. I think there is often the synchronization of how we feel, what we talk and what we do, you know, they are not aligned, which is usually like this uh, fragmentation. It's, it's a symptom of trauma. Then I think this tool is not really inclusive for everybody because not all people have always access. And I'm one of them. And I guess everybody a little bit is to use this tool. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree that I think trauma is, um, it's a creative force, like this enormous amount of creativity that comes from trauma, trauma-based behavior. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of art comes out of trauma. Um, and I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing. It's just like, that's how, how it is. And, um, and I agree that probably most people have some kind of trauma that if you think of trauma as like, you know, like a medical sense of like, an injury, you know, we're all being bumped into things and we're all like in different ways, you know, injured. Uh, and there are traces of those injuries in us that 
and we're behaving we behave accordingly. I mean, I think there there are ways to learn to reflect and see what is trauma reaction and what is reaction to what's happening now. Uh, I I don't remember where I read someone someone wrote that. You know, when you look when you when you think or like reflect on your own reaction. Um, you can think that the more his- hysterical, the more historical, you know. So the more more historic, uh, hy- hysterical the reaction, the more you're immersed in it, and the more it overwhelms you, the more likely it is that it's historical, that it's something that's triggered by something that has doesn't have to do with what's happening at the moment. And that's kind of helped me to to somehow pay or at least understand a little bit like what's what's what in different um different moments um yeah i don't i don't have an answer answer to that but definitely like that's uh, but i have to say that i think like rosenberg wrote in and worked in in environments that were definitely like dense with trauma and and trauma-based behavior so i don't think it's exclusive of of that, I think it's exactly more about being aware of what's happening and being aware of the needs and artic- finding a way to articulate them, um, regardless of what is the original source. Yeah, um, I, I think I, I think it's a life lifelong, <laughs> lifelong uh, learning. But then maybe if you f- expand it to the more modern human world, of course, it's obvious that our our like trauma is not a human only phenomenon it's like that kind of trauma or intergenerational uh, traces of different kinds of harm uh, are all over with everything and in everything and um and i don't i'm sure there's a lot of ways in which we can't even perceive that as trauma we see that as just as the way things are i think it's resma menakem He's saying basically that trauma in a trauma in unacknowledged in a person looks like personality, and trauma unacknowledged in a family looks like um, looks like I don't remember what was the word, but like trauma unacknowledged in uh, in a people looks like culture, and I think that's something that we can also expand to thinking of the, the more than human world and that we see as culture or as natural as something that's actually a trauma trauma behavior going a little bit farther from from on belonging um when i was uh, looking at the documentation of your of your works they of, often refer to like decay or like uh, animal farms where i don't know antibiotics are used and in general, the, the interconnectedness. And uh, I couldn't help, you know, looking from my perspective to see that they are all loosely kind of, uh, although not mentioning clearly, refer to also like a microbial work, right? Because if we think of decay and, I don't know, cooling cooling body after death, you know, the microbes already start their work. I mean, they are always there. Uh, but it's something which keeps being alive out there, right? Um, is it something you've been ever kind of uh, reflecting on? Or is it just me having my obsession with microbes and seeing them everywhere? <laughs> well, I mean, it's um, 
it's very realist to see them everywhere because they are everywhere, <laughs> like you say. Um, I haven't thought of like, I did one piece um, a long time ago, 2008, where I I first encountered this question of microbes and where the question of human microbiome was kind of just becoming at, after the human genome uh, project, uh, the human microbiome project, or I don't know if it ever became a project like that, but, but was kind of starting to get some, some uh, attention. And it's, it's a very simple piece where I just pressed my face on a cultivation, like a surface, and then recorded what was growing out of it. And it was just a kind of a thought experiment on this idea that we are, we are actually an ecosystem and not an individual uh, in the sense that we've learned to think of ourselves. And then, um, and then also like that this community is not, its lifespan is not the same as my lifespan as a, as a human being. Um, so these issues that I think are very obvious now for anyone who's working in this field uh, felt then felt kind of like new or um, like opening a new perspective. Since then, I haven't really thought of that question of microbes um, specifically. And I think because my a lot of my own work has focused on mammals or like animals. So the question of animality and how that how that functions, then sometimes I find that when we then expand it from there to, you know, microbes, it's easy to lose the focus of like some ethical, ethical urgencies of like hunting or factory farming or, you know, and then, then, you know, if you just are like, okay, what if like, what about all these other relations that like, can we manage these relations? And so it's, it's more like maybe the question of microbes is, is proposing a, a problem for me, you know, in the sense of like, how do I articulate these ethical urgencies that I'm forefronting, which doesn't mean that the works, things you're working on aren't any less important. They're just like, it's a completely different set of questions. It's like the ethical questions are approached from a different angle, but how do I pose these questions about like animality or, or non-human animals in certain like conditions in capitalism, um, how do I how make the differentiation that there is like certain set of ethics that we, that are meaningful to discuss in relationship to these creatures, but actually bringing the bacteria into this conversation doesn't really, it doesn't really help, you know, it kind of like borders the ethical question. If we try to try to address all relations, like as like an equal or not equal in the sense of better or worse, but equal in the sense that we should we could have like a blanket solution to everything so maybe that's something that and that was one of the reasons why i think this is a really interesting conversation because i'm i'm really curious to hear what your thoughts are are on this uh, particular issue because of course the relations with a scientist and the bacteria are very different than say like a, a, a producer producing meat on a pig farm or something like that and the ethical questions are also different or are they different? Like, should we have a blanket solution? So maybe I'm th throwing the ball back to you. <laughs> like the first thing which comes to my mind about the similarity, because I totally agree with you that putting, for example, mammals and uh, microorganisms to one uh, 
one bucket is kind of blurring the urgency of the problems, uh, which, for example, farming animals, let's say, you know, is definitely having. So uh, I totally agree with you regarding that. But I think that the similarity and uh, what microbes could kind of confirm, those borders are much more blurred than we were kind of taught or told about. So if we think about like human and non-human mammals, let's say, I think that there's the, this, these borders are much more blurred than we could think of. And these divisions are just made, you know, it's a bit like with races, right? Like uh, they, they, are, they are made to serve certain like uh, ideas and to kind of justify the exploitation what you were mentioning about like this whole like the, the the genome project when when kind of it got scientifically proved how microbes are present in human bodies and that actually we are kind of mostly done but done with microbes it also kind of questions so what is human like where do i end and where do i start right which I think that in the case of like this culture of individualism, it really questions that. So I think the similarity is exactly here that that on a on a kind of a mental level and how we construct reality in our he heads, we are like these borders are all just made up, you know, and uh, they bring uh, a lot of explanations to the to the current practices in in the world and exploitation. But actually, this is just all the constructs to to justify this stuff. That's it. Absolutely. And I think um, in both cases, um, when, when you say that this, um, these borders or boundaries are exist only in order to justify exploitation, I think that's definitely true. And then there's also this fixation on identities and it's like a, a essential reading of things where we think in terms of this is this, so it belongs to this category, so this can be done to it. Um, where I think there's two problems with that. One is that things are not things, things are processes, things are dispersed into other things. It's like, it's like you say, it's impossible to say where, what's a, what's a human, you know, it's, it's just, we constantly, we evaporate into our surroundings. We change, we're like, we're cloud, we're not a thing, we're cloud, cloud in movement, you know, and everything's a cloud in movement, you know, and so that. First, of, like that misunderstanding of what's the what's the quality of reality um, in the in the first place. Um, that's one like misconception of of what um, what creatures are. Um, but maybe we, if I can say something that I found really interesting in the beginning when you you introduced your practice and you said that you like a relationship to bacteria is like that bacteria don't have a personhood, which is kind of a good thing because they're not recognized as persons. So you can, you can smuggle them in and put them in a pocket and they're like, they're your companion, but they're not recognized as a person. And I think that's a super interesting point to make, which, you know, when we're thinking of non-human legal personhood and who is recognized and who is seen and given that standing, you know, in the face of law, um, that there's also something <laughs> to be, you know, some, some like surprising, you know, benefits from not being recognized from like not being recognized as an agent, not being put into these categories and not being 
you know, not labeled into this and this and this. Um, and, and actually now I remember what I was about, about to say about the other thing. So, so that the two kind of misconception is like that, that world would, would constitute of things first. And then the other is that as if like these moral categories would be developed by, by saying, oh, this is a, this is, this is a chimpanzee. It's, you know, characteristics are this and this from that follows that we can't use them, you know, but moral, moral categories are not in actual reality. They're not produced like this. You know, you have a chimpanzee that is similar to humans and that can lead to its ex explicit exploitation, you know, be exactly because they're similar or it can lead to it being protected because they're similar. So similarity or difference, the quality or the characteristics of any being is not ever in real life, a justification for what can be done to it. It's like a different process. It's like the process of how something is re rendered into exploitable is more, I think, a more a matter of violence. And I think a cage is a good example. It's like, it's not like you first have, you determine, oh, these are creatures that are, you know, you can put in a cage because they're lower creatures and then you put them in a cage. It's like, no, you put picky creatures in a cage and they become lower creatures. So you put children in the cage and suddenly you can put these children in the cage because they're not quite human because they're in the cage. So it's these mechanisms of violence that actually produce these categories, these moral categories. It's not anything that is in the creatures themselves. Um, so in that sense, like I'm, I'm, I'm also like very, like I really love the idea that there is something subversive about not being a person, you know, not being, not being, you know, you can't put me in that, you know, you can't determine me in that way or this phenomenon or this event in that way that you escape because there's something really like oppressive in thinking in this thinking in terms of these categories, which is of course what we try to do because we work, we try to operate in a world that works through these categories, you know, but ultimately like, it's like, it can't be the end solution. There has to be some other way of seeing what's happening, another way of relating to this, this, this processes, then, then fixed identities and essences. The last interview I recorded, uh, we've been, we've been kind of, uh, with another person, uh, we've been thinking about this, our are microbes or the human microbiome, so the microbes which are within us, um, are they happy when we are happy? <laughs> so uh, can we can we somehow figure out that that this another species or this another entity has like shares the same goal with us? And I think that now when when I heard you talking, I realized that this doesn't equal each other. Because I think that for, for owners of the factory where, for example, I don't know, pigs are being kept, I think it makes owners pretty happy. They earn money on that and they are like, yeah, great. But those pigs, you can, you can say if you would go to the, I don't know, slaughterhouse that uh, they are not really happy. So it also actually, it's very interesting, like, um, that we can do, we can be very happy when other beings are very unhappy, basically, which kind of makes it even more impossible to realize like, uh, 
maybe also the whole concept or if bacteria is happy or not is also totally wrong, right? <laughs> because it's human. But maybe here I would like to shift uh, or like uh, channel our conversation for another uh, work I know you've been working on, and it's the party of others. Uh, because um, when I was just like reading through the documentation of this process, and of course, I would like you to tell us a bit more words about it, because who will better introduce it than you? But um, I was I wanted to brainstorm with you. Could we include some microbes in the party of others? But but first, tell us a little bit more about that work, please. I think, again, bacteria pose a question to the party of others or like a challenge. Well, in a nutshell, Party of other, Others was a project I started in 2011 um, when there was the first real um, real um, kind of landslide prior to the parliamentary elections that ended up with a real landslide of win of the right-wing populist uh, true Finns. I guess they're now called the Finns of the Finn party. I don't know. Um, uh, but that was like, you know, the first time they actually got this level of um, attention and popularity in the Finnish landscape. And I think in European, like the rise of white nationalism was like just happening. So that was one reason. And that that campaign was very much structured around what should we what would, what should we do with them you know meaning the migrants or the you know um you know anyone who is considered other from this you know white nationalist mindset uh, so the the language of othering was very present in that political discourse well at the same time i was working on issues that or exhibitions that included works like you know like working with CO2 sensors and environmental scientists and thinking of like our relations to the more than human world as interconnected in different ways and that we are like part of these nature cultures and you know we're not separated and all that and then at the same time it felt like we're doing these prototypes in these gallery spaces but then if I look out the window and especially if I look into law which is then the matrix that really like structures how we relate to each other there is very much a distinction between human and nature and animal and human. And so these distinctions are very hard lined, you know, in, in our, in the legal matrix of, of who can participate and who is, who is seen exactly again, who is seen as a person who is, who is visible. And so the party of others was, um, an initiative that I started as a political party that would represent all of those who are not representable, you know, all of those who are not persons uh, in the light of the current le legislation. So mainly non-human world and nature and animals, that was the focus. Uh, but then expanding to the question of like all the other humans and other beings who are not who are present, but are not recognized as being part of the political community. So it was really kind of a project about the limits of the political community and how that political community is defined. And I interviewed a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people at the time, environmental ethicists, uh, activists, lawyers, politicians, different kinds of people who had been, you know, speaking on behalf of the other, in the, the more than human other. Um, and asked what, what, 
you know, how, how could we, if we, if we had a political order where everybody would be represented, who would that everybody be, first of all, like who is, who would be included in that? And then, um, how would, how would that, how would, how would they be represented? How, how could we even like, what kind of system of governance would we have? And they gave very different answers. You know, some were saying we should just retreat to, you know, from, the world and have like human only societies and then leave the others alone. And some would say we need to kind of go and live in small multi-species communities and delegate responsibilities across species. And we still would have to have like some kind of global, um, global, you know, organization that would take care of things like climate change or things like this. So just experiments of like what, what a multi-species governance could look like. Um, and that there was an ex- exhibition and then a campaign where I campaigned for registering this political party in the official party register. And we got quite a lot of attention and people were quite interested in that, uh, a lot of press. Uh, I think it was like an intriguing question, but it, this was at the time when the rights of nature was just like, no one was talking about it. It was, it just felt like this is not even a political question this is absurd. Why would you talk about anything like this? Um, so in 10 years or a little bit more than 10 years, a lot has, has changed. Like these questions have become completely mainstream and completely relevant in, in so many different ways. And also like they've actually been, you know, there's a animal party in the European parliament. There's been all these initiatives on non-human legal personhood uh, from the perspective of uh, natural entities uh, such as rivers, usually coming from indigenous, um, you know, places or countries with strong indigenous representation. And then on the other other hand, you have campaigns for for non-human legal personhood of of animals that are very similar to humans, like orcas and elephants and chimpanzees. So it's like this idea of like personhood, legal personhood, um, and basic rights and, you know, like expanding, um, decolonizing, you know, our legal structure or like expand or expanding it to include more than humans is like very mainstream. Um, I've tried since that I've tried to, um, work on that a few times in different contexts. And I've found it that there is like an, there's a paradox in the project that has kind of like held it stuck in a way, because my, the project was not, it's the kind of paradoxical project where I try to start a political party in good faith, you know, to show how so many creatures are excluded and, and by trying to open this thing up to including them show how this premise of this whole system doesn't allow for them to be included because the whole premise is based on a kind of anthropocentric notion of of a legal order or or governance that doesn't that is exactly based on distinction from natural world or or like it's based on exclusion so you can't have a fully fully inclusive political system if the principles of the political system are exclusion, you know. So it never was meant to be like a a fully functional political party that would, you know, it was more like an intervention into, into politics. And this is the question that I've started now to think more of like, okay, this question of rights um, has all kinds of, all kinds of like, I think all kinds of obstacles or 
or, or, or problematics that I don't know, you know, I don't know if they can be the end goal in, in some way. Um, and I've also started to think that maybe like rights are not necessarily the best tool, like they're important tool, but, you know, we have human rights declaration. It's not a law, but it's a declaration. And at the same time, there's more exploitation than ever. So, you know, what, I'm more interested in looking at the material relation, material situations where exploitation happens and trying to think of like around those material practices, instead of thinking of these abstractions of who is entitled to rights and not because it just feels like if you're entitled to rights, you can still be violently exploited, you know, or if you're not entitled to rights, you can be, you know, pampered and, and safeguarded, you know, I'm thinking of like my dog who, you know, is like, doesn't have rights, but it's like safe as, as dental health care and probably mental health care if he wanted to, you know, like, and at the same time you have humans who are in a cage in a border and, you know, so these, these categories of who, who, who has rights, they don't necessarily like result in any justice <laughs> in the material reality of the world. So I'm thinking of labor and, and, um, material relations, um, to each other, um, at the moment more than I'm thinking of rights and personhood. Um, but to your question of like, should, should, um, should bacteria, uh, have rights too. There's actually a very good uh, article uh, by um, an, uh, a kind of animal rights theorist, scholar, posthumanist scholar, Zipora Weisberg, where she's critiquing um, Donna Haraway. And, and I think the text is called Should Bacteria Have Rights Too? or something like that, where she's critiquing Donna Haraway and the post-humanist discourse that's sort of willing to throw concrete kind of, I don't know, animal rights out the window because of this theoretical position of like, you know, you know, like then every, every, every creature should have rights in, in a certain way. So you kind of can't anchor the question of rights into anything solid if you try to find this blanket solution where everybody should have some kind of equal standing. It's an interesting text, um, and what she is arguing in that 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 text is like that instead of thinking of like in terms of posthumanism or posthuman or like more than you know maybe we should think of like left politics and think of a multi-species left left politics that would be against this instrumentalization of all species uh, instead of thinking of you know this through this human non human rights framework i don't know the the person you just mentioned and the text thank you for bringing it up i'm going going to check it I, I love the title already i think that for me mm, when i see in your work but also in the even in ferment radio although as we agreed that it kind of tackles totally you know different realm and one shouldn't put the mammals and, and, and microbes to the same bucket. Um, I think they are like uh, thought exercises. I think we are living in the times of like um, hyper-realism, you know, when you when you watch TV or you go to the cinema, the, the pictures I see, they are like, um, they are so hyper-realistic that 
actually I am not able with my human eye, I'm not able to see this amount of detail and, you know, uh, the sand, the, the, the piece, the little, you know, grains of sand and the, the juiciness of colors. Like this is beyond of reality to me, what, how I perceive the reality. And I think that in the time of hyper-realism, I feel like we need more kind of uh, zooming out, zooming in, you know, like looking at the, at the things from different perspectives. Can we learn something through that metaphor? Can, can we learn something about like a life in general, you know, while looking at this thing? Because it's kind of still strange and unexplored. And some of the, the, the things can, can become a bit sharper and lesser from our, you know, prejudice, our presumptions. And uh, I think this is why I am kind of exercising that, that muscle, which is very much kind of, you know, already intellectualized and fought through and, you know, back. And when we think about humans itself, and I don't know, even such important topics as, I don't know, cultures, genders, you know, should we put one more there and will itself a problem? You know, it's, uh, and I think when, when we open it up and again, there's no personhood, what we are going to do with this, I can, I can think better in that environment. And I think that's my personal motivation to operate in the, this micro scale. Yes, uh, I, I totally agree. And I know it made me think of in one conversation, um, Eben Kirksey mentioned or talked about, you know, in relationship to the question of um, exclusion and inclusion. Um, and I hope I don't quote him wrong, but something along the lines of like, instead of trying to get rid of exclusion altogether or find a fully inclusive system to think of like what kinds of entanglements we, we want to have, what kinds of exclusions, inclusions do we want to have because uh, we are, or what kinds of assemblages do we want to nurture, you know? Um, and that always includes excluding some variations, you know, some possibilities, you know, that we reject and don't want to have on the expense of wanting to have some kinds of assemblages. And I think that's productive to think that we can't, we can't have a world fully in harmony because that's just not how the world exists. Um, so yeah, that's definitely like really, really inspiring and really interesting. And I mean, bacteria are, or microbes, microorganisms are really, like, they're the they're, they they the they rule the world, <laughs> you know. That's it's they're they're such um, powerful force that uh, we actually with my with my colleague Laura Gustafsson, with whom we've done work for ten years, we started from um, from the idea that we would make a make a museum for all the all the species that haven't been whose whose view and perspective hasn't been. Um, kind of rep represented and we called it the museum of the history of others, which in Finnish is, Finnish is Toisten Historian Museo. And then, uh, we, we, at, at some point we even did a, like a grant application for a museum of parasite, which in Finnish goes as Loisten Museo, which was funny and it's kind of like a, a silly, silly joke. And we wanted to write like a history, world history from the perspective of microorganisms. Never got funding. So that went there. So hopefully someone does that. <laughs> 
No, no, I'm sure now you're going to get funding for that <laughs> after COVID. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were not interested in that perspective. How do you see it in your own work um, as an artist and, and, and like juggling with those ideas, writing texts, making artworks to be exhibited? How these are connecting to the world? How how they can how do they have power if any to actually change anything on a for example systemic level or or the way that it really becomes a, a time tangible change where does starts the action and how it actually looks yeah that's a great question and um i i guess at this moment my thinking is something like there's nothing that doesn't have an effect on the world <laughs> that every gesture resonates and re has ripple effects. Everything changes things. And, uh, so every, every, everybody's, every movement is like, it has this ripple effect. So that's like one thing. Another thing I've started to think of art, um, in a way where I think of it less as the things we do, less as the outcomes in a way, and more as a, as an orientation and also as an orientation of certain kind of openness to the world where we have to be emotionally also somehow available or open um, to things moving us and responding to them. Um, but then maybe like mainly I think of art as as a kind of very tangible part of our our consciousness, one could say, where there are things we can't think inside our heads. You know, we have to externalize them into language or into some visual forms or into some writing or texts or images or something. And that's always been the case. And I think that's actually not just a human quality. It's like all kinds of forms of consciousness need to externalize themselves into some kind of material outcome so that we can reflect on them. It's almost like we can't do the thinking only in our heads. We need something to put that thinking into so that we can, we can actually comprehend and, and get somewhere. And then of course, the things that we externalize that, that we kind of push out of our heads, then have an impact in the world and have an impact into what it's. So it's like, it's this ongoing process where we are materially engaged in thinking that thinking and not in the sense of like, just this like mind, but just like consciousness is uh, this evolving process of that, that the evo evolution of consciousness is like a material process. That's kind of what I'm trying to say. And that in some way, art is a very important driver or way of manifestation of that evolution of consciousness, one might say that then we see as cultures or we see as movements or whatever, but basically you can't put a cap on it. You can't say, oh, art's not good. Let's not fund art. So art would somehow stop. You know, it doesn't stop. We've seen it. It just keeps coming. You can put a person in a cave somewhere and it just keeps coming because it's, it's like you can't chop a head off of a person and then be like, well, it's better off without, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, 
it's a functional part of how we are exist in the world. So I'm not so, and so that's why I'm not so worried about like what's good art and what's bad art or should art be or what kind of art should be. Like those are the kind of practical questions that, yeah, of course, you know, when you have to deal with funding of art or something like that, then you have to think of like what, how to manage that. But art keeps happening and it keeps being this important force in the, in the evolution of consciousness. And so it matters more, what do we focus our attention on? Like that's actually the only thing that matters because that's where we direct the flow of consciousness into something that can generate something that's not self-destructive, you know? So in that sense, I feel like, and maybe this is an elitist position, which is like, you can be, you know, away from the world and still like do this thing where you're focusing your, you don't have to be politically active. I'm not saying that either. We have to be engaged with the world in many different ways and try to be active in whatever arenas we have. But I would never say that art doesn't have power to change things if art is not, you know, somewhere with a with a ban- banner, you know, with a you know, with like a statement. Because in some way, I think art is a life transforming force it's a manifestation of this ongoing force of like how we kind of go in the world and think of think think it anew think it think it to become something else and 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 yeah so i think like these questions about the modern human world or environmental issues or whatever it's like the more people focus their attention on this like it's like a more like a beam of light you know if we focus our consciousness into these things then we start producing things that again change our way of being change our you know our practices that it you know it's more like i don't care you know if i'm talking with my students i don't care if the art is good or bad or if someone buys them or like i don't like that's not so relevant what's relevant is that they what that they focus their beam of their attention, the beam of their consciousness into something that is deeply meaningful for them and also is not destructive to the world. And that's, you know, that's, I think that's what, that's the ethical imperative, I think, for an artist to do. Um, yeah, I, I, that's, that's where I'm at the moment, you know, might might change. And again, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't also be politically active, but I don't, I could imagine having a very apolitical practice, very meditative, contempl- I, in a way I do have very medit- contemplative practice that's very kind of quiet and private, but I'm in some other ways, I try to be politically aware or active. Um, and I don't think they have to necessarily go together in order for that art to have some kind of impact in the, it's it's this this idea that, as if consciousness would be isolated in our, like, it's not, we're part of this wave of thing that's happening that we are just, you know, part of. And, and that's your, your little, we're little droplets in this wave. (laughs) The question of animality is not that, is not a killing per se. It's that when we have a category of the animal, it creates an, a realm of um, where killing with impunity becomes possible. So it takes away killing as transgression. It takes away all the ethical implications of like killing. It's just like, okay, killing is just a technicality, you know, and I see animality as a conceptual area as like, it's like the, the, the sin 
the crime of animality is not the the violence itself. Violence is part of life, but it's in creating this category where we clean ourselves from you know from any crime you know where when like we we can just kill and it's not it doesn't we don't have to go and you know compensate it in any way we're not you know we don't have to deal with it in any way we just it's practicality and so that's kind of where i think our western culture is really really like fucked up because it's like everything's founded on this idea that there are these areas of of violence with impunity and animality is like what really kind of holds together this idea that there is this, it's like that's the way in which these categories are upheld is that we have animals and you can do anything to animals. And so you can put anyone in that category and then you can do any anything to them, whether they're human or non-human or whatnot. So getting rid of this category, I think is essential. It doesn't mean that we could get rid of killing, you know, and I think that's a big difference. It, it, it means that we can't like, we can't get rid of predation, like maybe coming back to our, your bacteria happy. I'm sure some would be very happy if you died, you know, (laughs) and, and, you know, but you probably wouldn't be and, and vice versa, you know, so this idea that there would be a harmony where everybody would be happy and nobody ever died or killed each other. That's not, you know, actually what we can, it's not like a perverse idea of life. So it's not predation. Predation is a natural part of life, but I think there's a difference in understanding that we have this, that we live with this violence, that life requires this violence and that it is a transgression, that there's no way out of it, that we kill, it's a crime, we still have to do it, we have to somehow make up for it, we have to have different rituals to make up for it, that there's no escaping that burden of of that ethical violation, that, that ethical violation is something that we have to, and and yeah, I think this is actually something that I hear from, from my friends who are like Sami or, you know, who are living in a different cosmology, different kind of relationship to, to nature is not that you would get rid of any predation or any killing. It's, it's just, you, you get rid of this idea that there would be killing that would be, would not be a, you know, not, not be a violation or not be a, a, you know, violence. And, and maybe, yeah, that's, that's just something that I wanted to say, um, maybe in relationship to to the mic, mic, microbiome world also is that we live in this, you know, we, we, we do live in this very complex world where um, there's no harmony that's great for everyone. Art can be a tool for researching things that have not been imagined yet. Thank you, Derike, for your thought-provoking work and for sharing your valuable insights here on Ferment Radio. I would like to end this episode with a quote from Ed Young's book. I contain multitudes, the microbes within us and a grander view of life. It has something to do with belonging as well. When Orson Welles said, we are born alone, we live alone, we die alone, he was mistaken. Even when we are alone, we are never alone. We exist in symbiosis, a wonderful term that refers to different organisms living together. Some animals are colonized by microbes while they are still unfertilized eggs. 
others pick up their first partners at the moment of birth. We then proceed through our lives in their presence. When we eat, so do they. When we travel, they come along. When we die, they consume us. Every one of us is a zoo in our own right, a colony enclosed within a single body, a multi-species collective, an entire world. If you would like to know more about the show, listen to this episode again or find previous episodes, please go to fermentradio.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and more. I'm always looking forward to hearing from you at hello at fermentradio.com. Ferment Radio is produced by Super Eclectic and is brought to you by Arts Promotion Center Finland, Culture of Cultures and the Center of the Social Study of Microbes. This particular episode was recorded during a residency at the BioArt Society Finland. Thank you very much for the support and most of all, thank you all for listening. Keep fermenting and stay tuned for the next episode of Ferment Radio.